Well, like Martin Luther King, I can say I've been to the mountain. If you go on Facebook, two Sundays ago, I was up on Mount Algonquin. And it's the second highest peak in the Adirondacks. It's the hardest trail. With my sons, we uh, took off from New Haven, Connecticut, and drove up to the Adirondacks. It was awesome. My oldest son is turning 40, and Jonathan said, Dad, before we begin this trip, we need to have the Father's blessing. And he asked me to pray there in the car before we took off and spent three days in the mountain. And, you know, that's the greatest thing that can happen to a dad, to have adult sons that just want to begin three days together and really connect with the Savior. And that just really meant a lot uh, to be able to do that. Just had a great time. I hope some of you will be able to hike with your adult sons. And I need to keep working because Josh is eight years younger than that. And he tells me I need to be ready to do that eight years from now when he turns 40. So that'll be tough. All right. I do want you to know that last Sunday, if that was two Sundays ago, I was up in the mountain. Last Sunday, I was at Word of Life, which is the organization my dad started on Sunday morning right at this time. There was a guy that was sitting down here in the front row. He was 87 years of age. And he got up, and he was going to be the keynote speaker. And he kind of went like this. I wonder whether he was going to make it. He's 87. And he got up. There was a pulpit there. When he got up there, man, he stood up straight. And it was like I was five years of age again. The man that was speaking is a man named Harry Balbeck. When I was a little kid, Harry, before I was born, fought in the South Pacific. He fought at the Battle of Peleliu, and he went right through all those battles in the South Pacific. His buddies died all around him. He fought to make you free when he came back. My mom really nurtured him. The Lord really used my mom to help him to recover from being a Marine, that had killed many people and had seen many of his buddies die, all the post-traumatic stress syndrome that we talk about now. Harry was experiencing that. My mom nursed him through that. And he was a piano player. My dad got him going. With One day he was playing the piano, and my dad was challenging him where he leads me, I will follow. Challenging the audience, we're on a mission. Four times he played four verses And on the fourth verse, my dad said, if you're going to make a decision, you need to make it now. And Harry stopped playing the piano came down. That led him to go to the jungles in Brazil. And he and his friend Harold, with Tom Young, another one of their friends, decided to try to reach the Chavante Indians. It was 1956. That's the year that the five martyrs were killed trying to reach the Wadanis. At exactly the same time, Harry and Harold and Tom Young went up the Kulawini River. It's a tributary of the Amazon Suddenly, the Chavantes appeared up on the bank, and they took out, just like you see in the Westerns, only this is a modern-day Western, they took out all the trinkets and all kinds of pearls and everything, and they connected with the Indians. As Harry was connecting with the Indians, one of the chiefs especially became his friend. He was ripped. I mean, his muscles are just bulging out. He lived his entire life in the jungle, and he was strong and sinewy and could stand on the edge of a dugout canoe on the point of a canoe and drill a turtle's neck that just stuck its head out of the Kulawani River. This war chief could just hit that turtle and have food for his family. He'd been on many, many tribal wars and got out in the jungle. And Harry trying to connect with him, you know, and Harry with his experience overseas, he using all kinds of sign language. Harry's got a great sense of humor. He brought his accordion of all things in the dugout canoe with him and played the accordion with him and just made great friends with his Indian chief. After a few days, suddenly the Indians turned 
against them. Those of you who have been with me have heard this story because it's one of my favorite stories. The Indians suddenly turned in for three days, really for many days, they chased Harry and Harold down the river. The, the missionaries ran for their dugout canoes and arrows sprang all around them. Harry, when they'd stop at night, suddenly an arrow would come right through the night and right into the log next to him. The Indians chased them and chased them and chased them. They're going down these rapids and suddenly the Indians are gone. And they figure, well, we've escaped. We're going to get back to our camp. But they then realized the, the river was picking up speed. There was nothing they could do to stop. They're heading right towards a narrow place in the river. And up on either bank, high on the bank, are the Shavantes ready to kill the missionaries. And Harry told the story when I was a little kid, and he was still telling the story as they went through that rushing river. As the Indians let go with their arrow, a mighty wind blew. And the arrows went everywhere. They went into all their canoes. They went into the river. They went into all their equipment. They, they went everywhere and didn't scratch one of the missionaries. They escaped back to their camp. Their wives hadn't seen them in months. And they thought, well, our mission to Chavantes ended. Praise God, we're alive. But the mission is over. About a year later, some Chavantes, a couple of them came and said, you need to come back. We need help. We really need help. And Harry and Harold hiked back, and they canoed back, and then hiked to where the village was. The village that had been incredibly strong and healthy, now disease, fever was racking the Indians. They were dying. Little babies were dying on a daily basis. And Harry told us the story last Sunday, how Harold and Harry decided, Harry, you're going to have to go back and get supplies. I'll stay. So Harry went back days and got antibiotics and medical supplies, brought some nurses, When he came back to the village, he couldn't believe it. Harold had dug the grave of more than 48 Indians. And Harry said, what about the war chief? What about the war chief? And Harold says, too late. Too late. He died just a few days ago. And Harry looked at the audience and said, I didn't get there on time to learn the language. I didn't get there on time to be able to explain the gospel of Jesus' grace. I was too late. And he challenged us last week. We're on a mission. We're on a mission to reach every people group, every individual. We've got to communicate the message of God's grace because it is the only thing that gives us a life that lasts forever and ever and ever. As we turn to Acts chapter 20 today, the apostle Paul is on a mission, just like Harry was on a mission. Harry was on a mission to reach every people group to learn their language, to learn how to communicate the gospel with them, to learn how to touch their lives for Jesus and how to see the life-transforming power of Jesus come into their life. And in Acts chapter 20, we have one of those farewell addresses. The apostle Paul, he's on a journey. And as we pick up the story, as we look at verse 13, it says, but going ahead, this is right after we had the raising of Eutychus from the dead and the whole church in Troas is encouraged. Paul begins to work down the coast. Look what it says. But going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Athens. So Luke and Timothy and, and the Gentile believers that are, that are accompanying Paul because he had this large gift to give to the Jerusalem church from the Gentile church. It says that they were intending to take Paul aboard, for so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. So the apostle Paul, evidently, he's a little bit afraid to get on this ship because he might be taken captive. But when they met him at Assos, that's a cross on the Turkey side. If you think of, he was in Greece. Now he goes across and he's on the Turkey side. 
Assos was a city that was up there a little bit to the north of modern-day Turkey on the western coast. They took them aboard. They went to Mytilene. That's the next city down. Then they went opposite the island of Chios. And the next day they came to Samos, another island. And then the day after that they went to Miletus. So if some of you are into sailing, well, the Apostle Paul was into sailing too, only that was the only way you could get around. In the first century you would go with the winds. So the Apostle Paul is coming down. He finally comes to Miletus. It says, For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to get to Jerusalem before the day of Pentecost. What happened on the day of Pentecost? Anybody tell me what happened on the day of Pentecost? That's when the Holy Spirit was given. In the argument of the book of Luke, you had Jesus' death and resurrection. You have him rise again from the dead around Passover time. Fifty days later, the Lord Jesus, the ascended Christ, pours out his spirit. And the Apostle Paul wants to go and celebrate that gift of the spirit when the spirit was poured out upon the Jerusalem church. And now that spirit spreading throughout the ancient world, he wants to get to the mother church and be able to bring this great gift so that he can unify the believers in Jerusalem. Remember at Pentecost, you had people that spoke Elamite, and they spoke Akkadian, and they spoke Egyptian, and they spoke Latin. They spoke all these different languages. They all heard the gospel in their own language. And the idea of that is the Lord is uniting his people. You wouldn't pick it up, but I want you to be reminded. One of the things that Dr. Luke is encouraging us to do is we need to unite Jews and Gentiles. In the first century church, the Spirit was poured out. He united. First of all, he started with Jews, but then he reached out to Gentiles, and then there became this great break. Would Gentiles have to become Jewish in order to receive eternal life? In Acts 15, the Holy Spirit led the church to come down really strongly. No, Gentiles are saved by grace, just like Jews are saved by grace. You can culturally eat your food that you want to do. You can have your holiday that you want to have. You can meet with your family groups. But when you come together to worship Jesus... You're one blood, the blood of Jesus Christ. In the first century, that was Paul's passion. His passion wasn't to create a Jewish church and a Gentile church that would stay separate. His desire was to get them together. And he used the giving, like the Gentiles' gifts of material gifts to help support the Jewish church would bring them together. In our own church family, what that means is down through for 40 years, we've supported Jewish missions We've had Jewish believers come and eat Passover meals with us. We've had people that went to the Holy Land, and we're going to continue to do that. That's the way today we keep Paul's mission going, because by the way, the church of Jesus Christ down through the last 2,000 years has not done well in keeping Jews and Gentiles together. I've taught you that. Another area that we've done really poorly in is race. The white evangelical church, as I've often taught you, and the black evangelical church believe exactly the same thing about the death of Jesus to forgive our sins. They believe exactly the same thing about Jesus rising in from the dead. They believe exactly. I could teach in a black church this morning exactly like I'm teaching you. They'd all be saying, amen, amen, amen. But in a black church around our area, you'd have 99% African Americans. And in our church, you have the same Caucasians. We got to change that. As Midlothian grows and as Midlothian changes, we can't just run farther south. You understand? Those are really big issues. The Church of Jesus Christ in America, there's a mighty moving in the Spirit. A mighty moving in the Spirit. Younger evangelicals are saying, this is enough. We have to stop dividing over races. We have to stop dividing over socioeconomic things. And I want you to know that's been a patch of my life. How did that work out for the last five years? 
The Lord opened the door. Martin Hawkins is from New Jersey, like I am. I'm from northern New Jersey. He's from southern New Jersey. He's African-American. I'm Caucasian. But we have exactly the same eastern background. And the Lord needed my gift, my training in Old Testament and New Testament, to help Southern Bible that Dallas Seminary started more than 87 years ago. But we would call it, we wouldn't even recognize it as a seminary. The joke was it was our bastard child. That's evil. we got to change that. This is a new day, and I believe all of you are joining me in that. But I want you to know, I've been pouring my life in to teaching African Americans. In my classes, there's representatives from all those churches up in Oak Cliff that you see, and the churches in Fort Worth, and churches in between. And I've been connecting with African American pastors, because that's a burden that the Lord placed on me, and he opened the door, because they have rhetoric. If you want to hear preaching, African Americans preach 90 times better than I do. I've heard incredible rhetoric. But it needs to be rooted in God's holy word. And one of the passions the Lord's laying on our church leadership is that as Midlothian grows and as Midlothian changes, that with the younger generation, that all of us, and with the older generation, that we're going to be red and yellow, black and white. We're going to have all different forms. We need to stop arguing over our little form. I want you to hear great soul music from African-American singers. I want you to hear great jazz that brings great glory to God as they play incredible keyboards. We need to stop. There's richness in the multiplicity of God's family. Doesn't mean you lose your distinctiveness. Understand me. That's not what the Lord is calling us for, but he's calling us for unity based upon the blood of Jesus. That was Paul's heart. I'm not making that up. The Apostle Paul was giving everything he had to unite the body of Christ, and they failed. The Gentile church became far more powerful. The Gentile church had far more money. The Romans devastated the Jewish church in 70 AD. They destroyed Judaism. They scattered Jews all over the place. And as, as the church in the time of Constantine became the dominant religion, they forgot about the fact that Jesus was even Jewish. And that led to today, where my Jewish friends from New Jersey think that Jesus is a cuss word. It's time for us to demonstrate that Jesus is for everyone. Amen? That was Paul's passion. But this is the last time he's going to be with the Ephesians, so he's on his way. That's why he's on a rush to get to Jerusalem. As we pick it up in verse 17, we have the power of the Apostle Paul's personal example and his responsibility. It says, now for my leaders, he sent to Ephesus and called for the elders to come. And when they had come to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia. I served the Lord with humility and with tears, with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. The Apostle Paul is first of all reminding us of the power of spiritual leadership's example. What he's saying is he can say to the Ephesian elders, you know from the first day that I set foot in Asia that I served you with humility and with tears in the midst of great opposition. I told you the story of Harry Baalbeck. When I hear an 87-year-old man that had been shot at by Indians because he's trying to reach him for Jesus, that's the real thing, amen? And that's how you evaluate church leadership. As I look back over our own church ministry here for 40 years, there have been times, I remember going into homes where a guy has a gun in his hand and he's gonna hurt his family and you gotta talk him down just like the police officer do, only I'm his pastor. 
That's the way it is in real life. And being able to talk him out and being able to get the gun away from him. And then like an idiot putting in my top drawer and not checking to see what was loaded. And I find out three days later my own kids were in danger because I have this gun in my thing. I've had those going through divorces where I had to take Tommy guns. I had to store them in my closet so that they don't hurt anybody. This is the real thing. Little old Midlothian, Greg Knighton, that was in, went to prison for killing George Rayfield. He was in my office. So I can just say to you, like, I'm not a Marine, but in 40 years of ministry, there have been times. The funny thing about it is when it's happened, you don't even think about it, and you won't think about it either. But the reason that we pastor is because we care for souls. We care for people's lives. That's what the Apostle Paul is saying. The Apostle Paul wasn't a prideful, arrogant man. He was the authentic, genuine thing. And I'm nowhere near the Apostle Paul, but he's been my model. He's been the one I want to be like. And the tears. Paul was a humble man. What I want you to know is, like, my gift is preaching. And probably the worst thing is I'm prideful about that at times. From the time I've been a young man, since I was a little kid, I could speak and could captivate an audience. Forgive me for my pride about that. And I have spoken too long in business meetings when we needed to plan and not teach. And I still haven't learned not to do that. But I want you to know that I believe with all my heart, it's not the power of rhetoric. It's not the power of speaking. It's the power of the Spirit. The Apostle Paul wasn't Apollos. The Apostle Paul stuttered, and when you read his book like 2 Corinthians, he jumps his subject. He wasn't a good orator, but man could he write, and man could he live, and man was he an example. And if the church family, that's what you look for in leadership. The American evangelical church needs to realize it's not by the power of the form. It's the power of the authentic life. That's what Paul had. And he faced opposition. You need to realize that the body of Christ, if you try to live by grace, you're going to face opposition. You're going to face those that oppose you. And the Jews represent the religious guys. They're the ones that say it's in the form. They're the ones that say it's in the place. They're the ones that say it's in the ritual. You're going to have them right within evangelical Christianity. You need to stand against that. It's all by the amazing grace. The Jews hated Paul because he told everyone everywhere he went. It's all about the gift of salvation. And he'll come back to that more in this speech. So the Apostle Paul is telling us about his humble yet his bold commitment to the gospel in the face of opposition. The second thing, look at verses 20 through 21. It says, I did not shrink back from declaring to you anything that was profitable to you. I taught you publicly and from house to house. I testified to you both Jews and to Gentiles, both groups. You need to turn to God. His repentance here is what the church at Pentecost, when Peter preached, the Jews that crucified Jesus... In the middle of his message, they turned away from their belief that Jesus was a blasphemer, and they turned to God and accepted God's verdict that Jesus was the Son of God. That's what repentance means. It means you turn away from your rebellion. You turn away from your false beliefs about God. And just like the Jews at Pentecost were pricked in their heart, Dr. Luke is reminding us through the Apostle Paul that everywhere Paul meant, he said, you've got to turn to God. And the way that you turn to God is through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice what he's stressing. And now, behold, I go to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city 
that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not count my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus Christ to testify to the gospel of God's grace. Now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I test for you that this day I'm innocent of the blood of all. So the Apostle Paul in the first part is talking about the power of his example. And he just gave you his life commitment. When Mary and I were at Keswick speaking this summer, the verse that they memorized was that verse I just read to you. I count my life worth nothing. But one thing, that I might finish the race like a long-distance runner, that I might finish the race. What's the race? We need to testify to the gospel of God's grace. And that's what our church family needs to focus on. We're in that race. I want you to know that Mary and I have taken on. That's our commitment. I want to be 87 years old. My mom died when she was 72. My dad died when he was 83. Harry's outlived him. And I pray with all my heart. Harry told that audience, I'm going to see the next director of World of Life 15 years from now, and I'm going to still be given the point address that challenges you to be committed to the gospel of God's grace. Amen? That's what I want to be. What the Apostle Paul is saying is, I'm innocent of the blood of all men. And I, I don't think I can really say that completely. But earlier this year, like Wilburn Racer, that a lot of you know, Wilburn Racer is a great, great, well-known older guy that was the principal of the high school when my boys were coming up through. And then he was superintendent all over the area, May Pearls, all over the place. And he was in Rotary with me every week on Tuesday at lunch with me. And he got Parkinson's disease. So I saw the guy that I knew when I was 23, and I got to know him. He was a strong football coach, strapping, powerful, intimidated students. But he sat by me day after day, and he was shaking and becoming weaker. It came so that he couldn't come to Rotary anymore. I went to visit him at his house in uh, Cedar Hill. And he was out on his bed in the midst of those beautiful woods, and he could barely talk to me. But just a few months ago, I got to stand up at the Civic Center with a 1,000 people there. And you know who was there? All of my kids' teachers, all the football coaches, all the school administrators, Coach Moore, his wife that directed the school, all the people that you know that are on the buildings, Seal, LaRue Miller, those are all the people that train my kids. What I realized as I'm sitting there in the auditorium is we've lived, that was our life. Those are the people that we were in cafes with. Those are the people that a lot of you have been in cafes with. And what I can tell you is I testified to the gospel of God's grace to all of those people. That's what our church family is about. And those of you that are in the younger generation, what's important is you need to reach your generation. You need to take on the burden. You need to be able to be used of the Spirit so that you can say that when your kids are grown and you have a 40-year-old son, that you can say all of their teachers, all of their coaches, friends. I did a wedding just recently, and I had several key young men and women that were in Janae's class, and I'm doing a wedding for one of the guys in our church family. I'm able to share the gospel again. And none of those students can say, well, Dave didn't tell us the good news. That's what this church family is about. And what we need to pray is the Holy Spirit needs to come on 
the next generation. The fires need to blaze again. We started out in 73. There were eight men. They would get up at 6.30 in the morning and study God's word and pray for this family. The Spirit wants to move again like that. That's what the Apostle Paul is saying. So the Apostle Paul says, I've been a good example. I followed what the Lord led me to do. But one of the great things about the Apostle Paul is he knew he trusted God's Spirit and he needed to go to Jerusalem. The Apostle Paul knew that he could leave the Ephesian elders and they were responsible. So what you have in this passage, he says, I'm going to talk to you as shepherds. So for the next few minutes, I want to teach you about what the Apostle Paul says that you need to look for in godly fathers. So he says in the next section here, as we move into the protection of effective fathers in God's family. Look what it says in verse 28. The Apostle Paul says, I want you to be careful. I want you to pay attention. Pay attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseer. The word overseer, some of you might have bishops. It doesn't mean bishops with gold chains around their necks and beautiful robes. The word overseer here just simply means someone that oversees. The first responsibility of a father in God's family that's been made an elder is that he needs to be aware. He needs to be overlooking, overseeing. And it's not being like an overseeing taskmaster in Egypt. This is like a humble shepherd. And what a shepherd does, like if you're a Palestinian shepherd, a shepherd during the night, the shepherd will lie at the open gate in the stone wall. And the shepherd protects the sheep. No wolves can come into the sheep because the shepherd is lying in the gate of that flock. They put them in this stone encampment. And that's what Jesus means when he says, I'm the door. I'm the only way you can get into the sheepfold because Jesus is the door. But those that are fathers in God's family, they lie down with Jesus. And we're going to find out the Apostle Paul says they protect the sheep. They also, shepherds, know what the sheep are doing. So we need to grow. If we're going to really grow with the church family, we need to have fathers that are really aware. They're calling. They're meeting in homes. They're getting in contact with the sheep. We've lost some of that. Church isn't just having a big thing on Sunday morning. Church is shepherding people during the week. There's a big difference between theater and church. Church is about sheep. And with sheep, you got to walk into manure up to your armpits. we got to rekindle that. In my generation, and coming up through, when I tell you about, we went to school with each other. We camped out together. I want to challenge the younger generation. That's what you need to do. That's why I went hiking with my boys. The Apostle Paul is saying that you need to connect together. You need to have leaders. You need to have effective fathers. Even with my adult kids, I need to know what's going on. I can just think over the last couple of days, emails, texting, talking on the phone with almost all of them. Janae has to check with mama almost every day. That's the joy of life. The Apostle Paul says that elders are overseers. Then he says that they shepherd. So shepherds oversee, they watch their flock. The ranchers that I know check their cows every day. The ranchers that I know, like Al Bauckham that I started out with, I did it a million times with him in a pickup truck. I've done it with Hugh on horseback. You oversee all your cows. Make sure you know every single day what your cows are doing, when they're calving. Are they going to be all right? Are they protected from coyotes? The second thing is what I just said, you protect them, and then you feed them. What the Apostle Paul shared in this passage is that he has faithfully done that. 
He said, you need to pay attention to your flock because you need to realize after your departure, fierce wolves will come among you. They will not spare the flock. There will be men that rise up even among yourselves who speak twisted things, things that aren't lined up with the word of God's grace is the idea. I admonish you day and night, beware of that. So one of the major things that elders need to do in this family, you need to protect this family, and we need to protect this family doctrinally. One of the things that I've done every single Sunday for 40 years, I've spent hours and hours and hours to get ready to do what I'm doing now. And I challenge you, you can all disagree. I don't care if you disagree with me at all about what I said. But you need to open up to Acts chapter 20, and you need to show me from Acts chapter 20 what I said that wasn't consistent with what the Apostle Paul said. And we built this church family with a group of eight people that every week we would be committed to really learning God's holy word in the flow of its context, in the flow of the redemptive story. That's what the Apostle Paul is saying. False teachers use God's word, but they pick and choose. And they're actually not teaching you. They're not letting Dr. Luke build his thoughts from the Gospel of Luke to the book of Acts. They're actually just jumping all over the place. And one of the major things I want to get across to you is that I'm very, very burdened. The next generation needs to know God's thoughts from Genesis to Revelation. They can't be jumping all over the place. And to be honest with you, a lot of my students, that's exactly what they do. I'm really burdened about that, so you need to pray about that. I'm trying to mentor the next generation so that when they teach you from Acts 20, they know where they are in the redemptive story. That's my passion. That's my burden. The Apostle Paul says, elders, you have a responsibility for that. In our own church family, for example, we've had conflict. In one skit, we mentioned the word whore. I can use that as an example to get this across. And we did backward somersaults for weeks on whether or not that was a good thing or a bad thing. I got news for you guys. Your Heavenly Father says a lot stronger things than a whore if you study Genesis to Revelation. You're scared to death. The younger generation is scared to death to really teach God's Word. Where do you want me to, to start in God's Word? We can't tell Cain's story. I've told you that. I can't tell you Cain's story. That's a murderous, violent story that will scare your little kids to death. Let's forget that story. Noah takes off all of his clothes and gets drunk in his tent. So I can't tell you that story. Judah thinks he's going to bed with a prostitute. Instead, he ends up going to bed with a woman that's going to generate the line of the Messiah. I can't tell you that story. David is the great king that all the story is going to, and then he sleeps with another man's wife, murders her husband. Can't tell you that story. What story do you want me to tell you? I'm really serious about this. Because I've got college students that are 18 years old. They don't know anything about God's Word. And they think it's boring. They think it doesn't do anything. It doesn't really relate to their life. And man, the story of the Bible is the greatest story there is. It's true. I want to tell you that my commitment... It's, I want to raise up a generation that's going to teach the redemptive story. They're not going to wet their pants because someone's uptight with the fact that they use the word whore. We're all whores before the righteous holy God. We're immoral. We're evil. That's why Christ stretched out his arms on Calvary for us. That's why he died. Because I'm unfaithful. And I lust after what I shouldn't. 
you don't understand that, if you think you're good religious people, you've missed it. We're all sinners in the hands of an angry God like Jonathan Edwards said, but Jonathan Edwards didn't stop there. Jonathan Edwards wasn't an angry man. He was a man that said, as you're dangling over the jaws of hell, a precious Savior shed his blood on Calvary and rescued you from that dangling spider web. And he made you his son. He made you his daughter. That's the greatest good news there is in all the world. That's the gospel of God's grace. That's what Paul believed. That's why he was so persecuted. Religious people hate that. They hate the fact that whores and tax collectors and former slave owners like John Newton that wrote Amazing Grace, they hate the fact that they can be totally forgiven by the stretched out arms of Jesus and his blood. But it's still the power of God into salvation to everyone that believes. The Apostle Paul says, as elders, your responsibility is to make sure that the message of God's redemptive grace, the amazing thing that we're saved not by morality, that we're not saved by our rituals, that we're not saved by creating rules and regulations that we obey, but daily we're looking to the cross of Jesus and the power of our resurrection, and we're letting his Holy Spirit pour this new life into us, and we never get over the thrill that we're forgiven. And therefore, we welcome all different kinds of people. We never hold anybody away because we're so overwhelmed with the love of God that constrains us. That's what the Apostle Paul's message was. He finished. And the Apostle Paul left for Jerusalem. Well, Mary and I aren't leaving for Jerusalem. But it is time for me to step down from being the major Sunday morning teacher every week. Because like I've shared with you already, a lot of you have already seen the last few years, I'm teaching a full-time load. I teach all day Tuesday at Southern Bible. And I challenge you, I've had some of you come up and take classes. Some of you need to sit in an auditorium and be with African-American brothers and sisters and study God's word with them. Some of you that think that Oak Cliff doesn't understand anything, they are scared to death of you and you're scared to death of them. The only way you can overcome that is come and study God's word with them. And then on Thursday, I spend all morning teaching seniors at Dallas Seminary what I'm teaching you today. I'm teaching them how to preach from the Psalms and not mess up the story. And I'm trying to teach them how to teach Old Testament prophecy. Prop Hendricks, I went to his funeral. He's the guy that taught me to speak when I was a little kid. He's the one that got Don and I to go to Dallas Seminary. He's the one that taught us how to expose God's word. He's the one that encouraged us. And when I preach to you this morning, I can hear Prof. Hendrick, just like I can hear my dad in my mind. But Prof. is gone. He's no longer traveling around this country. My dad is no longer traveling around the world. It's my time to mentor the younger generation. So Mary and I are going to step into a role like Papa and Ami, like grandfather and grandmother. We're not going anywhere. The elders have asked that we become like the pastor at large. They want to really bless our teaching ministry. You can still hear this New Jersey voice. If you just turn on Truth Encounter, we're not going to change any of that. We're going to keep going with that. And one of the burdens we'd have about that is that we'd begin in Genesis, kind of like J. Vernon McGee did the gospel bus. 
Well, one of our burdens would be to start in Genesis and end up in Revelation and put together the redemptive story to show people how the first three chapters of the Bible tell you the redemptive story. And most of all, to teach the younger generation how to teach that story to other people. 